Good morning. This is Rona Palmer from Fluke Reliability, and the webinar will be giving will be starting in just a few moments. Right, good morning and hello everyone. This is Rona Palmer from Fluke Reliability. And thanks for joining us for today's best practices webinar. And you know, our goal at Fluke Reliability is to help you connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems to make some better informed decisions and drive connected knowledge. And you know, knowledge is really based on best practices and condition-based maintenance. And toward that end, that's why we conduct this particular series of webinars, our best practice webinars, where we explore different reliability maintenance strategies and invite guest speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their expertise. And I'm very pleased to have with us today a name familiar to and a speaker familiar to many of you, and that's Nancy Regan, who is an RCM expert and the founder of RCM Training Online. And Nancy is going to be presenting today's topic, Are You Letting Your Machines Control You? <laughs> For those that don't know Nancy, she's, been, uh, she's spent more than 20 years uh, facilitating various RCM or reliability-centered maintenance initiatives and has been an international maintenance and reliability speaker and trainer. So good morning, Nancy. <laughs> uh, good morning, Rona. <laughs> And for those of you who've attended some of our webinar uh, programs in the past, you might notice we're trying something a little different today. And in addition to sharing some slides, Nancy has asked to be on camera and speak to all of you directly today. So, um, Nancy, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day and uh, for joining our webinar. And maybe you can share with our listeners um, you know, we've all seen the standard webinar format of slides and people speaking. And what prompted you to sort of want to change things up a little bit today? Well, you know, our world today is in a very difficult situation. And as a result, we are all distanced from each other. And I will tell you that I personally miss people and I miss the interaction. So I wanted the opportunity to do something maybe a little bit more personal, maybe something that might make it feel like we're closer together. So thank you for the opportunity. Great. Okay. Well, before I turn things over to Nancy, just a few quick housekeeping items. We are recording today's session, uh, so we have your phones on mute to minimize background noise. But we will be posting the recording to Excelix.com. And Nancy has agreed to stay till the top of the hour after her formal presentation and answer your questions. But please feel free to type a question at any time into the questions feature in GoToWebinar. If you'd like to take a moment and locate that, and then we'll read those to Nancy at the conclusion of her presentation. Also, if you'd like to receive a copy of the slides from today's presentation, just let us know. There'll be a, a survey at the end when we close the webinar, and you can request a copy of the slides and also request a certificate of attendance. So I think that's it for the housekeeping items, and I'm going to turn things over to you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you, Rona. Um, so welcome, everyone. Today, we are going to talk about a really important topic. So there's a special reason why I chose this topic, and it is because, really, we're going to talk about reliability. We're going to talk about what it is and how we get the kind of reliability that we need from our equipment. Because as equipment custodians, we live in one of two worlds. We either live in a world where we control our equipment or we live in a world where our equipment controls us. And when our equipment controls us, it manifests itself in like chronic downtime and costs that are out of control and frazzled teams 
and maybe we're making a lot of scrap product. So that's costing us a lot of money because our machines aren't doing what they need to do. And maybe you're the person responsible for reliability within your organization. And if so, then maybe you're working not until five o'clock at night. Maybe you have to work until seven or eight. And then maybe you get woken up when the phone rings at 3 a.m. because the mixer is down. So, you know, it affects you personally, maybe a little bit more stress and a frustration because you just can't get the culture right. And that is the reason I chose this topic is because we hear a lot about a reliability culture today. And, you know, today when we hear that, I'm not sure everybody really understands what it means. But to me, what it means is that everyone understands the fundamentals of reliability and they're all on board together. Now, here's the thing. Achieving what we want out of our equipment, achieving our goals of reliability, it's simple, but it's simple, but it's not easy. And this is why I think that a lot of organizations right now are suffering, so to speak, with their culture. Um, you know, and a lot of a lot of times today, people or people in our organizations, right? We're looking for the sil the silver bullet. We're looking for that quick fix to our reliability problems. But the thing is, is that it doesn't exist. If we want to achieve our goals of reliability, then we've got to start with the fundamentals. And here's what I mean. Let's just take, for example, let's say, let's say that, okay, sorry, hold on one second. Okay, so, let's say you've got a piece of rotating equipment right and you align the shaft and everything is good to go and you start it up but the problem is that the rotating equipment is on foundation that isn't even so what happens is when you start up the equipment it's going to cause increased vibration and it is going to cause associated components to wear out more quickly and it's going to fail and eventually the machine is going to go down and you're going to get the call at three in the morning that the machine is down now what happens in some organizations where okay we go and we troubleshoot and we figure out well the shaft was misaligned so we align the shaft and we fix everything else and we get it back up online and then a month later we have the same failure but the problem is because we didn't start with a good solid foundation. It wasn't even. And it's the same thing when it comes to achieving our goals of reliability. We have to have a good foundation. And so today I want to talk about the, the basics, right? Like I'm a basics kind of a girl. So if you ask me what reliability is, we can get super technical about it, but that's not what today is about. Now we're going to go through some things today and many of you um, on this webinar may be thinking, well, yeah, I already know that stuff, but here's the key. If you feel that you already know that stuff, then what I want you to do is I want you to be thinking in your mind who in your organization doesn't know this stuff and who should. Because when we, when we as an organization don't understand what reliability is all about, we get all that stuff that we talked about, right? Increased costs. And, you know, like, for example, we get maintenance is uh, button heads with production because production just wants the machine up and maintenance just wants the time it needs to fix it properly or maintain it properly. So that's the goal of today. Okay, so when I, when I graduated from college, 
I got recruited by the Naval Air Systems Command and I started out as an intern. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I was really bored. If you've ever been an intern, then you know that you don't always get the most exciting work. Well, one day I'm, I go to work and my phone rings, right? And I pick it up and it's my supervisor, Fred. And, you know, he says, hey, Nancy, can you come up for a second? So, you know, have you, have you got a minute? And I'm thinking, you know, Fred, I, got, I just got here. I got the next eight hours. What can I do for you? So I go upstairs and I sit down and he says, Nancy, we've been tasked from above to do reliability-centered maintenance. So now I'm sitting there, right? And I have my notebook with me. So I write down reliability-centered. What did he say? I think he said maintenance. So I write down maintenance. And he says, our maintenance costs are through the roof. And we've been tasked to try and reduce those costs. And we've been tasked to do reliability-centered maintenance. So he said, I need you to go figure out what that is and what we have to do to implement it here at Navy Lakehurst. Now, how was I to know that this 10-minute meeting on an otherwise ordinary day in August 1997 would quite literally set the trajectory for the rest of my life? Because we did employ reliability-centered maintenance, and we were able to drastically reduce our maintenance costs while not having reliability suffer at all. So I fell in love. I, my, I lost my technical heart and soul to reliability-centered maintenance over 20 years ago. And then after about seven years of doing it with the Navy, I really wanted to move on to apply it more broadly. So I started my own business, and one of my first customers was the CH-47 Chinook helicopter, our Army's heavy lift helicopter. And so we started doing reliability-centered maintenance with them. And remember, we talked about it's simple, but it's not easy. And there's no silver bullet. There's no quick fix. Um, we worked hard. We worked hard creating a good culture. And we started to implement the results of our analyses. And after three years, we implemented a lot of the results that we got. And for the first time ever, now this was a 40-year-old airframe at the time, they were able to achieve their goal of 70% fu um, fully mission capable ever. So it was, it was like, it was a huge win for them. And what makes me feel so good about it is that uh, they were able to achieve that because it was a goal for so long. And so today when we talk about these fundamentals the goal is not to teach you about reliability centered maintenance but the basics of maintenance and reliability are jam-packed in the rcm process so i will refer to it just to explain the basics in the context of that process now before we go on i would like to ask you a question so we have a poll ready And so Rona, if you'll get that poll ready, and in the meantime, I'm gonna ask the question. And the question is, when it comes to reliability, what is your single biggest challenge or frustration right now? Is it a systemic lack of understanding of what maintenance and reliability are all about? Is it a lack of funding? Is it that you're unable to convince top management or you have lack of management support, or maybe you don't have good data, or maybe there's something else. So we're just gonna pause for a moment while we get this poll.
Okay, so Mona, Arona, are you gonna share the results? Let's see, I can see them. It's small on my screen, but I'll read them. Okay, so it looks like a systemic lack of understanding of what maintenance and reliability is all about is 27%. Okay, lack of, oh, and then we lost that, okay. Okay, well, it looks like the results have disappeared from, oh, are you there, Rona? We lost Rona. Go ahead, Nancy. That's okay. That's okay, because I had a quick look at those poll results, and what I'm not surprised about is roughly 30% say that there's a systemic misunderstanding about what maintenance and reliability is all about, and that is consistent with what I hear from people. In fact, I got a call about a month ago from someone at a plant here local to me, and he's been spinning his wheels because they're living in reactive mode, and he understands what needs to be done, but his biggest pain point is that the people in his organization, especially management, they don't understand what reliability is all about. And you know, as human beings, when we know better, we do better. And so let's go on because there's a way to solve this, okay? So let's go on to the next slide. Okay, so the question is then, where do these fundamentals come from? Now, this is a really, it's really important to understand where these fundamentals came because we can learn from it. So what I'd like to do is tell you a little story. And I'm gonna tell you the story as it was told to me by my mentor, John Mowbray. And the story takes us back to the mid 1950s in the commercial airline industry. Now, at the time, right, within the commercial airline industry, at the time, this is the way that they believed equipment failure behaved. Where the x-axis is age and the y-axis is the conditional probability of, of failure. Now you might be thinking, you know, I thought we were gonna be talking basics today and um, we totally are, but this is so important to the story. And the thing is, is, all of these principles are over 50 years old, but they've never been more relevant, okay? So basically what this is saying is that what they believed is they would install a new component and a certain amount of time would go by. And if they didn't overhaul or replace that component, then failure would occur. And so they, they believed that everything had a useful life. So overhaul or replace, and you're gonna be good to go, right? So now time marches on. And now we find ourselves in the early 1960s and we see the emergence of newer aircraft. And we see complex equipment start to emerge as well. We've got electronics, pneumatics, hydraulics, um, pressurized cabins and turboprop engines. It's all brand new equipment. They have no experience with it, they have no historical data, but yet they have to come up with a maintenance plan because these airplanes are gonna start flying, right? So consistent with their philosophy at the time, which was very heavy in scheduled overhauls and scheduled replacements, they basically took their current maintenance plan and they mirrored it for the newer aircraft. And in the case where they had nothing to mirror, quite honestly, they took their best educated guess and they put the airplanes out there, right? So what happened is that the crash rate started to increase to 60 crashes per million takeoffs. Right? So they say, oh brother, we must have guessed wrong up here. This useful life must not be as long as it is. So what they did is they moved their 
overhaul in their replacement intervals back. So in the case of turboprop engines, um, in the case of piston engines, they were um, overhauling them every 6,000 flight hours. Well, they moved it back to 4,000 flight hours. And they did this for their, in, for their entire maintenance plan. So they started doing a lot more maintenance and obviously they started doing it a lot more frequently. So they put these maintenance plans into practice and the airplanes go fly and three things now happen. In very few cases, things stayed the same. In very few cases, things got better. But for the most part, things got worse. So now they're in a worse predicament than before, right? So now what do you do? I mean, 60 crashes per million takeoffs, the equivalent of that in the 1980s would be the equivalent of two 737s crashing somewhere in the world every day. So they're in trouble and they know it. So they form a task force and the task force says, okay, we have made two assumptions with this model. We have assumed that we know the way equipment failure behaves, right? We say that there's a useful life for pretty much all components. Well, they say we've already challenged that. We moved the intervals back and things got worse. So they stepped back and they said, let's challenge this whole philosophy that things fail for the most part because age increases. And what they found literally rocked the world of maintenance at the time. And that is, that is a quote um, that my mentor, John Mowbray, told me that Stanley Nolan, one of the pioneers of this process, that he, that he said, because this is what they found. They found that there isn't just one failure pattern that failure modes behave according to, there are six. Now let's look at failure patterns A, B, and C. See what they have in common is this age-related phenomenon. So they weren't off their rocker, right? I mean, things do fail because they get old, but the shocking part, what they proved, and they studied electronics, pneumatics, hydraulic structures, and engines. And what they showed is that the simple items, things that come into direct contact with the product, like tires, brake pads, um, that kind of stuff, aircraft structure, that is age-related, but only about 11% behave that way. And look at failure pattern B. Only 2% of the failure modes were behaving the way they believed it was what was actually going on. But the bigger part of the story is that they showed that for complex equipment like electronics, hydraulics, pneumatics, these things failed randomly. So obviously, if something fails randomly, it means it has the same chance of failing today than it does tomorrow. So doing a scheduled replacement or an overhaul doesn't make any difference, right? You're you're actually you're not doing yourself any good. You're just increasing maintenance and increasing maintenance costs, but you're even making things worse because look at failure pattern F, right? Failure pattern F, this is infant mortality before it settles down to a low level of random failure, right? So they showed that 68% of their failure modes were failing this way, right? So every time they stopped and did a scheduled replacement or a scheduled overhaul, they kept reintroducing infant mortality. So they kept reintroducing the problems. And that was one of the biggest reasons why the crash rate was increasing so insanely. So it was that that they said, we need a new way of doing business. And it was, we just had the 52nd anniversary of the first report that came out of all of this on July 10th, 1968. It was the first report that started these principles. And so that's why they needed a new philosophy. And that's how what we now know as reliability-centered maintenance was born. Okay. So now we have to ask the question, what is reliability? Now, 
like I said in the beginning, we could get all technical, right? We could talk about equations, we could get super theoretical, but in our organizations, in order to foster this reliability culture, we need to be able to explain what reliability is to the people on the shop floor and to the CEO. They need to be able to understand it as well. Now, this is what my mentor taught me reliability is. He said that reliability is not a thing on its own, but rather reliability is sprinkled amongst all of the functions of a piece of equipment. So in other words, it is what we need our equipment to do, right? So let's say, for example, you've got a compressor that is making up the plant air in your organization, right? And um, you know you need it. You need a certain output from it, and you need it to do it maybe 24/7 or however often you need to do it. If that compressor is working when you need it and it's giving you the output that you need, you're going to step back and you're going to say, "Well, I got a pretty reliable compressor." Now, what's important to know is that when it comes to reliability. To a very large degree, we design our reliability. Okay, so we design our reliability both literally and Figuratively speaking, right? So let's talk literally first, right? So let's say we've got a machine. Right? And it comes to us designed a particular way, right? And it comes to us, you may have heard the term inherent reliability. Now, inherent reliability doesn't mean how long a piece of equipment will last with no failures. Reliability means the kind of reliability, inherent reliability means the kind of reliability that we get from a piece of equipment when it's protected by the right proactive maintenance and certain default strategies. That is how we, as equipment custodians, we figuratively design our reliability, right? So if we've got our machine, it comes to us with a particular capacity. Fair enough, right? But we do proactive maintenance on it. And there's a whole lot of other things, right? Because we've got training programs. We've got operating procedures, we've got emergency procedures, we've got supply issues, right? I mean, spare parts. I mean, if, if you don't have the spare parts you need when you need them, that could cause downtime. So all of this stuff contributes to our reliability. So if you don't already know, I am, I'm gonna come clean and tell you a not so dirty little secret about myself. So I love playing no limit Texas Hold'em poker, tournament poker, not cash. And so, especially now I miss being live around a table. Um, but anyway, so a, a few years ago, I'm in Tunica, Mississippi, and I'm playing in a tournament. And I look up at the tournament clock and there are 50 people left, and then there are 30 people left. And then I look up and there are 10 people left. So that means I made the final table. And then we keep playing. And before I know it, there's only two people left and I'm one of them. Now I had been playing pretty well up until that point, but I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't like admitting this, but I let one of the ugliest forces in the universe get to me. It's that four letter word and it starts with an F and it's fear. I let fear get to me and I started playing 
horribly, right? I started playing fit or fold, which means I fold when I know I'm beat and I bet when I know I have the better hand. Well, my opponent picked up on my weakness and he exploited me until he had 80% of the chips in play. Now, luckily for me, it was time for a scheduled break. So my, I, my husband comes over to me and he says, what are you doing? You're letting him steamroll you. And I thought, oh Lord, he's right. I am letting him steamroll me. So I went into the bathroom and I locked myself in a stall. And um, I talked to myself, right? What are you doing? You know, you're letting him steamroll you. You know what you gotta do, just go back in there and do it. So um, I get back to the table and I sit down and I'm calm now. I throw in a few timely bluffs and I call when I know I have the better hand and I throw my hand away when I know that I'm beat. And in 30 minutes, I won the tournament. Now, my question to you is, what was the difference before I went into the bathroom versus after? And the answer is that it was my philosophy, right? Before the break, the philosophy that fear was running all through my mind had me all thrown off track. But I righted that in my mind and I got back and I made good decisions. Well, the same thing goes when it comes to reliability, right? So with the poker table, when we have a bad philosophy, we get steamrolled by our opponent. But when we have a bad philosophy, when it comes to our physical assets, we get steamrolled by our equipment. Or in other words, our equipment controls us. So all of these things that we do for our equipment, they're all dependent upon the choices that we make. And the choices that we make are completely dependent upon our philosophy. So that is the key here, is that as equipment custodians, we gotta make sure we have a winning philosophy when it comes to reliability. Okay. So what makes up a winning reliability philosophy? We're going to talk about four things. Number one, what we just talked about. We have to understand what reliability is and that to a large degree, we design it, which means we have to understand it. Okay. The next thing is this. So we talk about what we need from our equipment. And there's a term um, that I, two terms that I want to quickly go over, and that is design capability versus required performance. So late last year, I was facilitating an OCM analysis, and this equipment was chosen because it was subject to chronic failure. A component on it kept breaking, and every time it broke, it caused a lot of downtime, a lot of scrap products, so they lost a lot of money, and they just kept replacing the component over and over and over again. So we started to do an OCM analysis, and when we sat down to decide what we need from our equipment, which is basically writing functions, right? We wrote the functions and then we started identifying failure modes. And what came to light is that the failure modes that my team was talking about had nothing to do with maintenance. It was all about the equipment itself. And what came to light is that they were asking this equipment to transfer a product that it wasn't designed to transfer. And that's what was getting it all stuck and getting it all gummed up. So it's really important. It's, this is one of the biggest causes of chronic failure in our world today. When we get it wrong, then we have bad reliability. Best case, worst case, uh, you know, it could cause safety issues. So that's why it's often overlooked because it is so basic. But it's important to take a step back and make sure that what we're asking our equipment to do, that it can actually do it. So I have another question for you. So I'd like to pause for another poll. So Rona, if you'll take this away. Sure thing. Okay. So the poll question is, does your... Oh, let's go to the oh. next one, Rona. Okay. Uh, sorry about that. Okay. Uh, let's get to the next question. There it um, is. Oh, no. Next one. 
So while Ron is getting it teed up, here it is. The question is, does your organization have a process to formally consider required performance for your assets? So we'll pause for a moment while we get that poll. Great. And just type your answers directly into GoToWebinar. It looks mm -hmm. like we have about two-thirds of the votes in, Nancy. We'll leave it All open right. a few more seconds. And I apologize for my earlier audio, but it seems we're communicating again. Okay, in the interest of time, I'm going to just close the polls and share the results. And it looks like, Nancy, 34% said yes, about half, 51% no, and 15 are on the fence and aren't really I'm sure. Not sure. Okay, so, yeah, so I'm not surprised at at that poll. So again, you know, I know we're not splitting the atom this morning, but I again, I chose this purposely because um, too often in our world, we miss the basics. Okay, the next thing is the number two thing, what makes up a winning reliability philosophy is that we manage our assets at the right level. Okay, so what does that mean? So that means that we manage physical assets at the failing mode level. And I remember my mentor drumming this into my head. He would say all the time, we manage physical assets at the failure mode level. Now, when I use the word failure mode, I'm using that synonymously with a failure cause. What would specifically cause failure? All right. So what is a failure mode then? Right. Because we need to be able to explain this to the people in our organization so they can understand why it is so important. Right. So the way I describe a failure mode is that it's like a road. Oops. So a failure mode gets us on the right road and leads us to our destination. Now, our destination could be, is how we're gonna manage each specific cause of failure. That could be proactive maintenance. Maybe it could be that we need to do some failure finding on a protective device, like maybe, this is the home smoke detector, but we have more serious ones in, our, in, in industry, of course, but these are protective devices. These are devices that are intended to protect us in the event that something else goes wrong. So every now and then for our home smoke detector, we need to blow smoke at it and make sure that, it's a, it, that it is available. Maybe we need to change an operating procedure. There could be any number of things, but if we know that we manage physical assets at the failure mode level, then we need to identify what these are. So for example, let's go back to our compressor and let's say intake filter fails. Well, what am I supposed to do with that? You see, it's too generic. It's too what I call high level. It's not getting us on any road, right? This filter could fail because it could clog just due to normal use. Maybe um, the media, the filter media itself over time, maybe it is age related and maybe it could deteriorate or maybe it's damaged upon installation. Now you might sit back and say, well, what specifically causes that? Because that's what I would ask if I were facilitating this analysis. So maybe the installation procedures are ambiguous, right? Part of our job as responsible custodians is to set the people up in the field, set them up for success. And this is the way we do it. We do it by identifying what could cause us not to get the reliability that we need. See, it's that simple. Again, it's simple but it's just not always easy. Now, I wanna share, um, I had the opportunity in my, um, right outside my kitchen window, I had a reliability um, lesson. So these are nesting robins outside my kitchen window. 
And you're going to see that the mama knows what the birds need. They need worms. So you're going to see that she's going to come over. Here she is. She's feeding the birds, right? Now, the bird that just got fed, it wants some more. And the other birds are saying, hey, what about me? And the mom is saying, uh-uh, you got to wait a minute. I know what you need, right? She is the custodian. She's the custodian of these birds, and she knows what they need. So they're squawking, give me more, give me more. She's saying, uh-uh, hold on. I got to manage a failure mode because I manage you at the failure mode level. So now watch for what happens. Okay, did you see that? If you missed it, don't worry, because I got it in slow motion. What I want you to watch is look at the butt of this baby bird and look at what the mama does. So the baby bird is about to poop. And before the poop can fall into the nest, the mama bird catches it in her mouth and she eats it. Now she eats it for a few reasons, but primarily one. And that is because if that poop stays in that nest, it'll get stinky. Predators will smell it and they will come and eat her babies. So she knows she's got to get rid of it. Now she doesn't relax on her perch and you know, every day at the end of the day, take all the poop away. Uh-uh, she does it one poop at a time. And that's what we need to do as responsible custodians is we need to manage our physical assets one failure mode at a time. Okay. I'm just waiting for the screen. There's a there's a delay with the slide flipping. Okay. So the next thing is that we have to make technically appropriate decisions for each failure mode. And so in the in the context of reliability-centered maintenance, like I mentioned, we're going to talk about things in the context of RCM. Basically, the first four steps in the RCM process are, are functions, functional failures, failure modes, and failure effects. So when we write functions, we define the reliability that we need. And then when we identify failure modes, we identify what would cause us not to get it. Well, all of that makes up a FEMIA or a failure modes and effects analysis. So now all we have to do is take each failure mode and figure out how to manage it. And that's what we use the rest of the process to do. And that brings us to the RCM decision diagram. Now it looks like a lot, but I'm gonna make it super simple. All right, I'm gonna stop sharing for a second. Because this is what the RCM decision diagram is like. It's like a funnel. We're going to take each failure mode, we're going to put it through the funnel, and out of it, what we are going to get is an appropriate failure management strategy. And that could be proactive maintenance, or it could be a default strategy. So here we go. We take a failure mode, we answer the first question, if it's evident or hidden, which identifies if it's a protective device or not. And then we go down one of these columns. We assess consequences. If the failure mode were to occur, could it injure or kill anyone, breach an environmental standard? Maybe we have operational consequences. If we do, then we go down this row. And we consider, should we do condition-based maintenance? Should we do a scheduled overhaul? Or should we do a scheduled replacement? Now I wanna talk about one important fundamental because especially today, we hear a lot about condition-based maintenance or CBM or predictive maintenance or on-condition maintenance. I consider those synonyms. Now, when you do CBM, what you're doing is you're looking for some sort of evidence. And if you find that evidence, then you're gonna do a maintenance task based upon finding something. But the question is, how often do we do it? So many of you on this webinar, you may already know this. But if you do, then I want you to think about who in your organization doesn't but should, right? So it's called the P2F interval. And this is what governs 
how often we do a CBM task. So this axis is age again, or time, and it doesn't need to be calendar time. Again, it could be cycles or miles or calendar time. Um, you know, you could actually be uh, checking your product. You could, doing, you could be checking the quality of your product. And this axis is the resistance to failure. So the gist is, if we don't intervene, we get failure. Now, if we go back to our, um, our filter, right? And remember how we had the failure mode was clogs due to normal use? Well, instead of replacing it on a scheduled basis, we might want to do condition-based maintenance. So maybe we want to check the differential pressure gauge and, and we only want to change the filter when we know that it's in the process of clogging, right? So here our filter is new, but we know a certain amount of time will go by, right? And we don't care how long here. That's not what we're looking at right now. Here, we come upon a potential failure condition. In this case, maybe the differential pressure is, I don't know, let's say it's five PSI. And F is the filter clogs. Well, now what we need to do is we need to figure out how long this interval is. So, you know, maybe it's two weeks. And if it is, then that means we need to be checking our differential pressure at intervals less than two weeks. And we have to make sure that we have enough time to take action to avoid the consequences of the failure. So the big thing about condition-based maintenance now where you hear a lot of this is a lot of people, um, the first step is they're running to the shiny object, right? Without considering number one, what is the failure mode? What is the potential failure condition that we're looking for? And how long is that? Here's the key I want you to take away on this. How often you do a CBM task has absolutely nothing to do with how often the failure occurs. It has everything to do with how quickly failure occurs once the potential failure condition is detectable. So this concept, it's over 50 years old. But I talk to people every week and I share this information and there's still a lot of people out there who don't know it. And I don't say that to be, as they say in Alabama, ugly. I say it because again, it's the basics, it's, it's the fundamentals. And when it comes to the fundamentals, they're often overlooked because they're so basic. Okay. So just a note that within the RCM process, see step five is failure consequences. So when you do step five, one through five, when you do RCM, you get a FAMICA or a failure modes effects and criticality analysis. And then when you do step six, that includes CBM. So when you do RCM, you do it all. You do FAMIA, you do FAMICA, and you do CBM. Okay, the last one is that in order to have an effective reliability philosophy, we have to involve our greatest reliability resource, and that is our people. The equipment experts, the people in the field, the people who know the environment, and they know their machines. Because to a large degree, you can't find this information in the database, but our equipment experts can answer a lot of these questions. I call them the untapped gold in our industry. Okay, so last poll question and we're wrapping up. So Rona, will you spool up this poll question? And it is, does your organ does your organization formally involve a multidisciplinary team of equipment experts when making decisions about assets? All right, the polls are open. We'll give you just a few more seconds to give your responses and let us know if your organization has a multidisciplinary team of experts making decisions. All right, we still a few more. Okay, let's take a look. Well, Nancy, it looks like 52% say they do, 
41% say they don't, and 7% aren't sure. So okay, about well, half the, say yes. Yep, so for the half, I think that is absolutely fantastic. Um, but you know, the other half that says no, it's obvious that we still have a lot of work to do right? Because the operator and the maintainer and the engineer, they all come with different perspectives and different understanding of the equipment. So it's important to make the decisions together. But first, make sure they understand these fundamentals of reliability. Okay, so we're going to end with this. And I call it, don't get stuck in the gullies. So I was on vacation uh, just a few weeks ago in Daytona Beach, where I, where I went to school. So it feels like home to me. And anyway, I was walking on the beach and um, let's see, I was walking on the beach and I got a reliability lesson. So with the arrows that you just saw, those are what I call gullies. Now, when I was a little girl, you know, it's obviously low tide and when the tide goes out, it makes these little pools of um, ocean water. So when you're little, when you're, you know, six, seven, eight years old, it's like your own little swimming pool. It's really comfortable and it's easy to be there. You know, it's easy for my mother to watch me because she just has to have a chair there and watch me. She's not worried about all the waves and the ocean. But this is what happens when it comes to reliability. Sometimes we get in reactive mode and we're so busy putting out the fires or so busy taking care of other things that we get stuck in these gullies and we lose sight of what is really important. And what is really important is figuring out how to get the reliability that we need. See these little gullies, this is nothing. The real deal, the real deal is right there in front of you. It's like the whole ocean. So if you can consider that your organization, your plant, that's that's where it's where it's at, so to speak. Nancy, okay. some of us couldn't see this video. Oh, rats. You want me to play it again, Monty? Can you see it, Monty? Oh, I think we got the I think okay. we got the gist of your of your point. Okay. Yeah. Well, all right. Can you see this now? Can you see the question slide? Oh. No, we're not. Uh, no. Oh, I think maybe am I not the presenter? There you are. I think it's stuck on your screen isn't advancing. We're still uh, seeing the gullies. Oh, okay. Let's see. All right. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to stop sharing and now I'm going to share again and see if we get spooled up. There we go. Okay. okay. We're on you just want to right? go into okay, presenter mode. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I think we got the gist of it. And um, so thank you, everyone. Um, if you have any questions, we've got some time for Q&A. Uh, if we don't get to your question and you'd like to contact me directly, I would I would welcome an email from you. And if you want to learn more about reliability-centered maintenance, I created a, a free online on-demand RCM overview course. So if you'd like to, you just can go to this URL and you can opt into it. So thank you for your attention and good luck with your reliability. Great. Okay. Uh, again, uh, we have a couple minutes for a few questions, so please just go ahead and type your questions in. And Nancy, while you were speaking, one question that came in, you mentioned about the potential failure intervals and or failure intervals and, and conditions, the importance of failure mode causes for CBM and what if you don't know the potential failure condition? What do you, what do you suggest for getting that information? Okay, yeah, gosh, I, I hear this question a lot, right? So the first place to go to is your equipment experts, right? Because often they have the answer when it comes to simple things like belts and differential pressures and stuff like that. Now, if you're wanting to get deep into condition-based maintenance, something like maybe using vibration monitoring equipment, the first step, obviously, you make sure you know your, what your function is, what failure mode you're dealing with, and then you move on to the sophisticated equipment, like some vibration analysis equipment. And I will tell you that if you get hooked up with the right person where you're buying this 
um, this condition monitoring device from, what they do is they, they don't just sell you the equipment, they also help you figure out what that potential theory condition is, right? And I, and I remember, um, Rona and Monty, I, I remember when I was at the, the last flute conference and I, you know, I was kind of tooling around and I was just listening and I overheard um, a fluke representative talking about this where where they can come in and help and you know they can um like establish a baseline vibration and so they can help you to figure out when you get to that potential failure condition when you get to this particular vibration signature that's when you need to take action so you know and um that would be the answer equipment experts and if it's more sophisticated equipment you've got to lean on um, the person who's helping you implement that in your organization great and we had a, another listener ask um, they're located in a country with very uh, little maintenance capability so they're very early in their journey and what do you suggest for people who are in that want to get started down this reliability journey but what's maybe what's the first step when they want to get started and this happens okay. to be an electric power plant but you know in any reliability journey Yes, my answer, it would be the same for any reliability journey. And remember how we talked about all the funnels, right? We don't just have one size funnel. We got a big one, we got a medium one, a smaller one, and a tiny one. Now, here's the thing. Whether you do reliability-centered maintenance or any improvement process, but let's say you are doing RCM, you don't have to commit to doing it across your entire plant. You can pick one machine, one bad actor, and you could just analyze one failure mode. Maybe it is about a, it, maybe it's a bearing, and maybe it's failing due to normal use, and maybe you want to get into vibration analysis. Just focus on that one failure mode and build your momentum, build on your successes. Don't think that you have to take on reliability all at once. You know, uh, it, it's the same like exercising. If you want to get fit, you can't get fit all in one day, right? Every day you have to moderate, you have to eat moderately and you have to exercise moderately. And then by the time a year comes, you're where you wanna be or, or a month or six months, depending upon where you start. But next year is going to come. So my biggest piece of advice is don't get overwhelmed, just start small. Stage advice. And Nancy, can you just speak to when you're starting on the condition-based maintenance journey, you know, with all the equipment that's available, but you do have to train people to use it. What do you feel about how do they get started on that path? Do they generally start with outsourcing and bring it in-house? Or maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Okay, so I think, you know, outsourcing or in-house, that is a, a personal decision. I guess that depends upon, of course, what kind of staffing you have. But what I can't stress enough is that you, number one, make sure you know what failure cause you are trying to manage. So then you can make sure you choose the appropriate condition monitoring technique. Because you know there 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 are a lot of different things out there, right? I mean, if we're going to inspect structure, I mean, we could do we could look for cracks with our eyes. You know, we can do um, thermography. We could do a whole host of different things. So number one, start with what you know you want to monitor, and then figure out what equipment is available. So, and that would be, you know, talking to the people who provide that, talking to the experts. There are a lot of people out there who they, they love, you know, they love condition monitoring, like I love reliability-centered maintenance, and they can help you. But just don't start with the shiny object. Start with knowing what you're wanting to manage. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. And thank you to our listeners. It, um, in the interest of time, we're going to wrap things up, but we don't want the dialogue to end here. You have Nancy's uh, information if you'd like to reach out to her directly, participate in the course. And we're going to be, Nancy, if you can advance the slide, um, our next session um, is going to be on August 5th 
and Jonathan Goff, who's a Fluke Reliability Product Manager, is going to be talking about pitfalls in laser shaft alignment. Um, and so you'll be able to register for that. And in a moment when we wrap up, there'll be a brief survey, and please take a moment to fill that out. You can request a copy of Nancy's slides. You can also request a certificate of attendance, as a few of you have asked about. So thank you so much, Nancy, for, um, for presenting today, and thank you for uh, being patient through some of the challenges that we had, you know, trying a new format here, but uh, it was very engaging, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. And please take a moment and give us feedback and let us know what topic you know, are on your mind so that we can get people like Nancy and other experts to present. So thank you, Nancy. Thank you to our listeners. And we'll see you all the next time. Take thank care. you, Rona. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.